And welcome back to Nature is Gay. This is the podcast that explores biology beyond the binary. My name is Cameron. I'm your host. I am a sometimes scientist, sometimes teacher, always curious queer person. Today's topic is penguins. I typically like to focus on one specific species in these episodes, but with penguins, that was kind of tough because a lot of the behaviors that you see translate across the different species, even though the range is pretty widespread. And there are just so many examples of same-sex pairings in so many different species of penguins that it was hard to just pin it down to one, honestly. So we're just going to kind of talk about penguins in general and when a specific species is noted, then I will specify then. But for the most part, we're talking just in general terms about penguins. So let's get started. Penguins are flightless birds typically black and white, aquatic, and they live for the most part in the Southern hemisphere. There is one exception to that, and that's the Galapagos penguin. And they live, as the name suggests, in the Galapagos Islands. The rest of them live in the Southern hemisphere along the South American coast and the African coast and uh, Australia and New Zealand, as well as along the Antarctic coast. No penguins in the Arctic. So the North Pole, no penguins. Penguins in the South Pole. Not at the South Pole, literally, but you get what I'm saying. They are members of the order Spinisiformes and the family Spinisidae. And they, being aquatic, live half of their lives on water and half of their lives on land. The name penguin comes from when European explorers, of course, first encountered penguins. They thought that they looked a lot like the great ox that they had seen in Canada. Very superficial resemblance and also not related at all. But the genus name for great ox is actually penguinus. And so they named the penguins for the great ox penguin. Again, not related at all. Great ox are extinct now. So now we have this relic of a name that is not related to this bird at all, which is kind of funny. But the name penguin in general comes, there's two schools of thought as to where the name penguin may have originated from. The first is, and many dictionaries cite this, this theory that it comes from Welsh. The word pen meaning head and the word gwen meaning white. And so whitehead in reference to Whitehead Island where ox may have been first found in Newfoundland. Okay, makes sense. Nothing too crazy there. The second theory is that it comes from the Latin word pinguis, P-I-N-G-U-I-S, which means fat or oil. And this theory is supported by the Germanic word for penguin, which is 
Feitgaus, and the Dutch word Veltgaus, which both just mean fat goose. They mostly feed on fish and krill. They spend, again, half of their time in the water, and they're very good swimmers. They can, the Gentoo penguins are the fastest of all the penguin species. They can swim up to 22 miles an hour, which compared to humans, Michael Phelps, heard of him, can only swim six miles an hour. (laughs) That's nothing. 22 miles an hour for Gentoo penguins. So they also can dive. They've got these nice, like streamlined bodies that are really great for just cutting through the water. And their flippers are kind of out of the way. If you think about them in comparison to other birds, they're stiff and they don't have a lot of like, they're also very streamlined. They don't have a lot of extraneous stuff on them. So the little torpedoes in the water, but smaller penguins typically don't dive very far down. Large penguins, on the other hand, they go down and emperor penguins are the record holders for the deepest divers. They go 1800 feet down to dive for food. Hashtag deep. Their feathers are, as you can imagine, very thick and very um, like dense because it's cold where they live. And even if it's not like super cold on land, the ocean is very cold. You lose body heat more rapidly in the water than you do on land. So their feathers act kind of like a down jacket where they will trap the air in close to their bodies and keep that air nice and warm. That layer of air also helps to keep them buoyant in the water so they don't just sink when they <laughs> when they dive in. A group of penguins in the water is called a raft and a group of penguins on land is called a waddle. Very cute and very descriptive. Male penguins are called cocks and female penguins are hens, similar to chickens. And males and females are not very sexually dimorphic. There are, depending on the species, there are slight size differences, but they're very difficult to tell, especially to the untrained eye. It's tough. And they've got the same coloration and they are, they share parental responsibilities. So they equally will care for the egg and the nest. So you can't use that to determine their sex either. And all of their reproductive organs, all of their genitalia are internal. So you can't just look at them either. The only way you can really tell is probably x-ray them, do a necropsy, or you can do a blood test, which is a little less invasive. But the blood test is very modern. And there are actually cases of in 1913 at the Edinburgh Zoo, huge scandal. They got a group of five or six king penguins at the zoo. Very exciting. One of the first zoos in Europe to get penguins. And so Scotland was just thrilled and they went and checked out the penguins and they were so excited and they sexed them based on their pair bonds and they, who was like sitting on the nest. Bad idea because turns out they got all but one wrong. (laughs) They were all the opposite sex of what they thought originally getting a little ahead of myself here, but even more scandalous. Turns out there were a lot of bisexual penguins in that group and they just kind of had to accept it. They're like, oh, well, they're one, not monogamous. So these 
pair bonds are breaking up, coming back together, recombining, but they're also all not heterosexual pair bonds. So in 1920, they just kind of had to accept it and deal with it. Leave the gays alone. Penguins are thought to have originally evolved in New Zealand. 30 to 40 million years ago, there were actually giant penguins that were 5.9 feet tall, which is taller than I am and is terrifying to think about actually. And up to 80 kilograms. Someone else is going to have to convert that to pounds for me because that means nothing. In Cameron here, it's about 176 pounds. So, And the reason that scientists theorize that they died out is because of the uh, surge in toothed whales. They were these huge penguins were directly competing with toothed whales for resources and they were just out competed. So since they evolved in New Zealand, the ice age cycles over the next tens of millions of years, allowed them to move westward into Africa and South America. It's been really contentious with scientists who penguins are closely related to. Because you would think, oh, well, they're flightless birds and they came from Oceania. They're probably related to ray tights, right? Ostriches and kiwis, other flightless birds. But in 2014, a uh, genomic analysis was conducted on penguins and discovered that they diverged from Procellariformes 60 million years ago, which is the albatrosses and like petrels. So they're related to other seabirds. Puffins are another species that looks very similar to penguins on the outside, and they also live along shorelines, but they are not closely related. They are another example of convergent evolution where two species at different times, not related to each other, evolve similar traits. As far as appearance goes, again, not sexually dimorphic. There are a big range of penguin sizes. They typically follow Bergman's rule. So larger penguins live in colder climates and because they're better at retaining heat, they lose heat less rapidly. And smaller body penguins live in warmer climates, typically. That's Bergman's rule. It, it, most things kind of follow that. They also uh, follow what's called Thayer's Law, uh, something called countershading, which is why they're white on the front and they're black on their backsides. This um, allows them, if you think about a penguin in the water, if a predator is swimming underneath and looks up, the sun coming in and streaming in from the top of the water is just going to kind of blend in with the white underneath. So they're not very visible. Same goes for if a predator is looking up from above or looking down from above. The black backside of the penguin is going to blend in really nicely with the dark, deep, scary depths of the ocean a little bit better. So it's a way that they stay hidden from predators. Baby penguins are not like, don't have this coloration. They're typically just kind of like a grayish color and that helps them blend in with the snow because they're not swimming yet. So they're downy to keep them warm. They're nice and fluffy. And then they're just kind of like a, usually a brownish to like grayish color, depending on where they live to help them blend in with the snow or the rock or whatever they were born on. And then as adults, they develop this adult coloration with the contra shading. But one in 50,000 penguins will be brown 
And it's a condition called, they're Isabellian. They're not albino. Isabellian is what it's called. And they have shorter lifespans typically, mostly because they're not as good at hiding from predators because they don't have this contra shading, right? Penguins in their social groups. So we've talked a lot about social groups and the importance of social structure on this podcast. And penguins are no exception. They don't necessarily have very complex social structures, but they are very social animals and are very gregarious. And those social bonds are important to them for a number of reasons. They're really helpful for protecting protecting against predators, especially during breeding season when chicks are born. Most of their major predators live in the ocean, but on land, the babies are really like the chicks are really what's vulnerable. And so having a huge numbers is going to protect those, those chicks. Then also penguins tend to return to where they were born to breed. So they just kind of like stick around their area and keep coming back. Again, they share their parental investment and that goes for heterosexual pairs or homosexual pairs. And they, you know, if you think about these groups of penguins can be, you know, anywhere from thousands to millions of penguins large. And they all look alike. Even to, even to the other penguins. I mean, they all have very, very similar coloration and they all just kind of blend in together. So to recognize each other and to find their mates, they employ something that is known as the cocktail party effect. Wherein if you think about being at a party and it's loud and there's a lot going on, you can't really hear, can't really like pick out anybody in particular. You hear somebody say your name, that's going to draw your attention. That's a sound that you recognize and you're going to be drawn to right away. It's the same thing. Penguins have individual calls that they use for their mates. And this is something that a mate can recognize and pull out. Like, yes, to us, it just sounds like a chorus of like, but to them, it's like somebody is yelling, Martha, Martha. And Martha recognizes her name and she goes towards her name. Penguins, depending on the species, are not really monogamous. They will form like pair bonds that they're very close to and they can stay together for many years or for life even. And that goes for heterosexual pairs or the homosexual pairs. But they can also just stick together for a breeding season and then, you know, find another mate the next breeding season. Or they could be pair bonded and still have like extra extra marital I don't I can think of a better word right now affairs and copulate with other birds that they're not necessarily pair bonded with most of the um behaviors that we have observed um that scientists have observed in penguins have been with penguins in captivity and that is really only because we can know very easily in captivity 
what sex they are. Because again, if you're out in the wild, it's very difficult to determine which ones are male and female. And also we just have the advantage of being able to keep an eye on them at all times. We don't really have that advantage with wild penguin populations, especially since many of them are on the decline. Human interaction, even though penguins are not really afraid of humans, does increase cortisol levels in chicks, and that's not very good for their development. So I just want to say, like, even though all of these, all of these studies and all of this evidence is in captivity, that doesn't take anything away from it. It doesn't negate it. It's not like they're doing this because they're in captivity, especially because it, it occurs with such frequency. This is just a part of penguin behavior. In Humboldt penguins, at least 5% of all pair bonds are homosexual and 12% of all of their copulations are between males. And 15% of promiscuous matings, that's the word I'm looking for, not extramarital affairs. 15% of all promiscuous matings amongst birds that are paired are with other birds of the same sex. In um, Gentoo penguins in the wild, three out of 13, so 23% of their courtship displays were same sex. There's also a mix in penguin populations of there are some exclusively homosexual penguins like this has been observed in male humboldts but there are also there are also bisexual penguins and one book that i read even suggested that bisexuality is advantageous which is cool because you are getting these bonds and you are you know, maybe sacrificing like your immediate fecundity for, so your immediate like reproductive capacity for survival because you're forming these bonds and you're able to like share your resource acquisition, like responsibilities and duties. But over the long term, increasing your survival and making those sacrifices does increase your long term chances of like having successful offspring. It's an interesting, it's an interesting theory for like the benefits of these mixed mixed sex pairings in different species. As far as the copulatory behavior goes, it's a few different behaviors before like an actual mounting that that penguins in same sex pairs, which are again both male and female, will display. There's one called an ecstatic display. The ecstatic display is when the penguin stretches their head and neck upward, spreads their flippers wide, and flaps them while emitting several long, very loud donkey-like brays. So they go up, stretch their arms, and then scream. Sometimes it's just one performing it at the other. Sometimes they scream at each other. They also allopreen each other, so they will like mutually groom. They also will sometimes uh, bow to each other or like a combination of like bowing and grooming. That's called dabbling. There is also a um, display known as the arms act, which is like the beginning of your like initiating actual copulation. So uh, one penguin will approach the other from behind 
and press their body up against the other and just kind of start like vibrating their flippers. And then eventually they will kind of push them under their bellies and mount them. And, you know, if the, the penguin being mounted is receptive, they'll lift their tail and then they'll do a little cloacal kiss, which we talked about in, I think the lizard episode. I can't believe we haven't talked about birds yet. Yeah. Birds have cloacas. They perform a cloacal kiss. So this is where typically if it is a reproductive act, you'll have um, the uh, receptive female on the bottom and the male on top mounting. The cloaca of the male carries the sperm and in the cloacal kiss will transfer that sperm and material to the cloaca of the female. Interestingly, in some penguin copulatory acts, when they perform the cloacal kiss, the receptive partner, if it's like two males, the other male will actually like um, contract his cloaca. And even though it's, they're not fertilizing anything, will receive some of that uh, sperm material. And um, scientists aren't sure if this is like an orgasm response. I, I don't know, but they'll like um, actually internally receive some of that uh, sperm material. Sometimes too, in the female pair bonds, there, if there's two females, one of them will lay an egg. It's infertile, but they'll sit there and they'll try to incubate it. They also are a species that gives like marital gifts. So in trying to court another penguin in hetero or homosexual bonds, they will present them with like, especially in Jintu penguins, they'll present them with like grass or pebbles to make their nest with. And so if they've like accepted it, they'll start to make a little nest out of it. If you just do like a casual Google search of gay penguins, you will find a kajillion examples. And I didn't even want to list them here because there's so many and it just was too much to go through. But essentially there's a lot of them. There has also been a lot of examples of zookeepers providing these couples with an egg and they will incubate the egg and successfully hatch and raise a chick. Uh, there was a book that came out in 2004 about this. Hang on, let me check my notes. Yeah, so it was two male chinstrap penguins in 2004 who successfully reared a chick. And then a book was written about it called Entango Makes Three. Very cute. My parting word and the real thing that I want to like impart here is like a, a point was brought up in my research that really kind of made me think, you know, I talk about like being gay is, is natural and like um, being outside of like our idea of the binary is totally natural. And it, it is, but it's just like, at the end of the day, whatever you feel about this behavior, it's just sex, even within heterosexual sex. Sometimes it's not procreative. Sometimes it's not like they know they're not going to produce an, a, a, an offspring. It's like, it's because like sex isn't always for like having offspring, right? Even, even within heterosexual pairs, sometimes heterosexual mounts and penguins will not even include genital contact or any sperm transfer, or um, sometimes 
female gentoo penguins will actually mount male penguins. Like they were role reverse <laughs> and male gentoos masturbate. And also sometimes we'll try to copulate with dead penguins. Scientists, I think a little bit less recently, but I think a lot of the sometimes reaction to these behaviors is to chalk it up to something almost negative. It was an accident. They, they didn't know or they were practicing for their like straight sex that they were going to have later. Like that might be true, but like at the end of the day, it's, it's just sex, you know, we don't have to associate any kind of like value or purpose or reason to why they are forming these homosexual pair bonds or going through these, these homosexual, like copulatory behaviors. There doesn't have to be a reasoning. It could just be because they want to. That's all. That's all I have this week. This is the season finale, actually, of season one. Thank you all so much for listening. I am very excited for season two. And I'm really excited to share that with all of you. So if you like this podcast, please rate and review and subscribe on whatever your favorite podcasting platform is. Share it with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at nature is gay pod. And I'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Until then, as always, be well, be curious, and be gay.